1: Welcome in to Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to chat with Zach Cram from The Ringer in just a little bit. He has a great article up about Malcolm Brogdon and his case for the sixth man of the year. We'll also get into the Red Sox as well with Zach in just a little bit. But where we start is with the Celtics, who go down to the Knicks in double overtime, 131-129. to 129. This is now the third loss that the Celtics have had to the Knicks this season. They've now lost back-to-back games after what transpired on... Friday night against the Brooklyn Nets. Just an ugly performance for the Celtics in general tonight. And now I'm starting to get worried about the Knicks in a potential playoff series, right? Brunson didn't even play tonight. And you still lost to this team. And Julius Randle's done some really nice things against the Celtics this year. Hart gives them an edge. Quickly was tremendous tonight. We'll get to him in just a little bit here. But that team is really good. They have a bunch of good players and they're giving the Celtics a lot of trouble, even without Jalen Brunson in this game tonight. And then one of the issues that you run into with Brunson is in the postseason, this guy is one of the best isolation players in the NBA this season. He's at one point one seven points per possession in isolation. That's in the 88th percentile. So they get quickly. They can get buckets. They have Randall that can get buckets. They, of course, have Brunson that can get buckets. This team is just really, really going to give the Celtics a fight if that's the second round series. And we'll see. I mean, it appears it's going to be them in Cleveland in that four or five, but that's an awfully difficult matchup. For the Celtics, like we've been talking all year about how you want to avoid Philadelphia and Milwaukee, and I still stand by that. I'd rather play the Knicks in the second round than those teams, but this Knicks team is playing really well, and Mitchell Robinson gives you trouble. He blocks shots, and I just felt like there were a lot of issues in this game tonight, and you go to the end of the first overtime. I don't know what the Celtics are doing there. They go way too late. Like Jalen Brown doesn't give the ball to Jason Tatum until there's three seconds left. How are you going to do anything in that particular situation? So I don't understand this idea where they wait forever to go at the end of these games. And then the end of the second overtime, Joe Mazzullo opts not to use a timeout. They let 11 seconds come off the clock. No one comes to help Tatum. Like, well, I should say this. Jalen Brown was in position where they were... Sending up two guys to set screens for Jason Tatum. Jalen Brown's there. Grant Williams is not there. He's in the corner. So then they have to use the timeout. So you just let that time come off the clock and you don't take the timeout. I just wish that Joe Mazzulla would use his timeouts more often at the end of these games and set up the play. Because clearly what we saw tonight, not everybody was on the same page whatsoever. So, and then the other component to this is you lose a game in double overtime. Tatum plays 49 minutes. Jalen plays 47 minutes. And Al Horford played 46 minutes. The oldest guy on the team's out there playing 46 minutes and you get nothing from it because you end up losing the game. It just, it it was really a frustrating loss where I felt so many times the Celtics are going to win this game and they just couldn't figure it out. I mean, they let the Knicks come back multiple times in this one. And I look at the beginning of the fourth quarter and this is where I point at Joe Mazula and say, like, what the fuck was he doing? He starts the fourth quarter and... At this point, the Knicks go on a 12-2 run. He has Mike Muscala, Grant Williams, and Sam Hauser all on the court at the same time. And after that 12-2 run, Grant was a minus 8, Hauser was a minus 16, Muscala was a minus 9. Those guys at the time had a combined 11 points, 5 turnovers, and 8 fouls. I just don't know what is doing putting that lineup on the court to begin the fourth quarter. It just doesn't make any sense whatsoever to me. I don't know what he was thinking. And then Grant, to me... He is just really playing poorly, and I don't know if it has to do with his benching, but I have not been impressed with Grant really in a long time. He's been playing really bad basketball, and I will say this as it pertains to Grant, like, okay, he had some nice stops late on Julius Randle, which is great to see, but it just seems like he's working real slowly, right? Like, his decisions are just taking way too long for him to make, and just going through some of this game for Grant Williams. He threw the ball away where he's looking for a miscala, just threw it away, and then He got beat down the floor after Tatum missed a three. It led to an easy dunk. Grant's at the wing. When Tatum's taking that three, if you're at the wing, you have got to be the guy that's getting back. That's just poor floor spacing by Grant. Again, this comes back to the decisions. And he, I mean, this guy's barely scoring for this team. I mean, you look at the two games before tonight, three points, four turnovers and seven fouls. He's been really, really bad. Now, he did hit a three and you felt like maybe that gets him going when he cut it to 77-63, but no, that didn't happen. He was late on help where Mitchell Robinson ends up getting a dunk. And Grant Williams is supposed to be the help defender there. He's just late. Now, he got to the line. I don't know. Did you see that play where he got to the free throw line? I don't know what he was doing. He just kind of fell into the defender who was Mitchell Robinson. I don't know how it was a foul on Mitchell Robinson. But again, he had a guy in the corner, Al Horford, open for three. He didn't make that pass. Now, luckily, he gets to the line. He hits the free throws. But the play was kick it out to the guy in the corner to take a three. He threw up an awful brick with Julius Randle on him where he didn't even jump. I don't know what he was doing. He just kind of like flipped it up there and, and had no chance going in. And then again, from a defensive perspective, I told you that I thought he had some nice possessions on Randle, especially the one late where Jalen gets that steal, right? But he's late helping on Barrett when he was driving to the basket at one point. That made it 90 to 87. He then missed a wide open three with a score 102.99. 102-99. And I do really wonder, like, he had the putback late that was nice or made it 104-104. And I mentioned the Randall play in terms of stoning him at the end of regulation. But then in overtime, he misses a wide open three. It's 116-116 at that point. And then I don't know why he fouled Randall on the offensive glass and it put the Knicks in the bonus. That's just a decision that you cannot be making. So now if you look at it for Grant Williams, he has 16 fouls in his last four games and he has 16 points. <laughs> Think about that, 16 fouls in his last four games and just 16 points. So they gotta figure something out to get Grant going again because right now he just does not look like an effective player. This is the guy we're talking about, hey, he could be getting $20 million in the offseason. I don't know if it's just Joe Mazzula not playing him in that one game, if it just like really fucked with Grant or something along those lines. But Grant Williams was a real important reserve on this team last year. He was a real important reserve for the majority of the season up until the past couple of weeks. And the only difference is he essentially got taken out of the rotation for a game. So I really do start to wonder, has Joe Missoula sort of really played with Grant Williams' confidence? Now, I'm not making excuses for Grant. Grant's got to be better, but you do start to wonder about that in terms of just the confidence thing. And then this is really one of the only times this year where the Celtics were really bad in clutch games. They're now 21-9 and nine in clutch games, which means when there's less than five minutes to go and the score is within Five points but tonight obviously not good in clutch games so they dropped to 21 and 29 I remember last year that was a big issue for this team they were 13 and 22 29th in the NBA so with Tatum I thought he played well in this game I mean he had 40 11 and 6 and I thought early in this game they could lose him because he's yelling at the official barking back and forth for two possessions he ends up getting fouls from that right like he got six free throw attempts in that first quarter after he barked at the official so ordinarily I'd say don't do that and he did it it actually was effective I thought he played pretty well. I mean, he had a nice pull-up three to make it 20-19. to He had an unbelievable Euro step where he got to the basket. He had a nice hesitation where he got to the line on Josh Hart. He had a three off the top of the key to make it 31-31. He was just great in the first quarter, had 16 points, and took six free throws. And that had been an issue for Jason Tatum in terms of, since the All-Star break, he had three games of two free throw attempts or fewer. So tonight, at least, he got to the free throw line 12 times, even though it's something you'd like to see him do on a nightly basis. He was not attacking like he was earlier in the season for a good chunk after the all-star break. And I thought I mean he really had it going. He had a three on the right wing to make it 64-55. Left wing, he has this unbelievable hesitation now where he got Mitchell Robinson up and then he immediately does a hesitation, just goes right by him. That's something that Jason Tatum's really good at now. He just does such a good job going by bigger defenders. And then at the other at the end of the game, I thought he made the right play where in at the end of double overtime, there he finds Al in the corner. That's the right play. He got by his defender. Mitchell Robinson came off Al. He helped, he kicked it down to, to Al. Al missed the three. Unfortunately, one of the only threes Al has like missed since the all star break. He misses that one, but I think Tatum made the right play there. And then I thought Derek White had a good game. I just don't know why they didn't use him more until you had the situation where Marcus Smart filed out of the game. Like, I know that they really liked the Grant Williams-Julius Randall matchup, and maybe they thought this, hey, this could help, as we alluded to, with the confidence with Grant Williams. But Derek White has been the third best player on this team all season long. And I'm getting sick and tired of him never closing games, it feels like, lately. Derek White should have been on the court. Like, there's no reason that Grant Williams needs to play 30-plus minutes. It's not like he's shutting down Julius Randall anyway. So this is like I came back to this last week where I said— I like it when they play faster, when they have more guards on the floor. I would just like to see Derek White closing out some of these games. Like, there's no minutes for him at the end of the fourth quarter. All those minutes are going to Grant Williams, a guy that was out of the rotation. A, like, a what, last week he didn't play in a game, and now all of a sudden, Derek White's not playing at the end of these games. I don't get it. Derek White, if you just look at it and you rank the Celtics players, you're not getting to four. Derek White is the third best player on the team right now, and he's not playing at the end of these games. It just pisses me off. He's one of your best players. Play him at the end of games. I don't care if it's not a perfect matchup. It's not like Grant is so good right now, as you basically admitted by taking him out of the rotation. Why not play Derek White at the end of these games? It's just so irritating to me. It's so frustrating to me. And I just don't understand the rationale behind it. I thought Smart had some heady plays in this game. I mean, (laughs) he got so many bullshit calls with these guys, which I get. um, This is not an indictment on Marcus. I love what he does. This type of stuff. He got Randall really aggravated when Randall got the technical foul. Like, he was just, he was doing a ton of stuff that just really irked the Knicks. So, I appreciate that. And he hit a late three. I mean, to make it 111-110, you give him credit for that. And I thought he made a nice play defensively late where he stripped Hart late when they had the one-point lead. I, I don't know why the Knicks didn't challenge. The Celtics didn't score after that anyway. So, I thought Marcus Smart had a pretty good game. I mean, you'd like him to cut down on the turnovers a little bit. He had five in this game. But when he's handling the ball as much as he is, you kind of expect that. Jalen was really good in this game. He had 29 points. I think the big thing to me with Jalen is we saw some of that shot making early where he had the one foot mid-ranger to make it 71-59. Entering tonight, he's 98 of 204 on pull-up twos, 48%. Just ridiculous. And we saw him in transition. like He was really good whenever the Celtics would get out and run. We saw him just get downhill, finish at the basket. I mean, you look at it on the season now, he's fourth behind Giannis LeBron. And Shea Gilders Alexander in transition points per game at 7.1. So I thought he was really good on that side of the coin, if you will, in terms of pushing the ball, getting out and running. And I thought he actually played pretty well defensively in this game, too, where he blocked Randall from behind and then he gets the end one the other way, which is basically the block and like I was talking about with the transition. So, and then he had that nice play late where he got the end one. I still don't know why Grimes would follow him. Just let him take the layup there. The Knicks were up by three points. It made no sense. But, and then he got the steal on Randall late, which was a nice play as well. My only critique of Jalen in this game tonight was, of course, end of the first overtime, three seconds left, you give it to Tatum. It's just, you got to make a decision quicker. I put a lot of that on Missoula as well, but you got to make a decision. And then the other thing I didn't care for with Jalen, it's 128-125. He has Mitchell Robinson on him. And like I was saying with Tatum, what Tatum does when he has a big man, he sets him up, right? So he'll give you a little hesitation. He'll go by you. Or like we saw another time on Robinson, he gives him an in and out. He gets downhill. With Jalen, he settles for a three there, where Jalen is not a great three-point shooter to begin with. He has got to go by Mitchell Robinson like Jason Tatum does. So overall, that would be my critique of Jalen. The play at the end where he just gives it to Tatum, I mean, throws him a flaming bag with three seconds left, which is just inexplicable. And then not just going by Mitchell Robinson, settling for threes. Al unfortunately missed the late one, but he's been so good for this team since the All-Star break. He's now 23 of 37 from three. He missed the big one, of course, but 23 of 37 from three since the All-Star break, 62.2%. I mean, the spacing that he provides this team is just ridiculous. I just, it sucks that he played all those minutes tonight and the Celtics lose because you just, this is a game that clearly Joe Missoula and company were going for it in terms of they were putting these guys out there for major minutes and you end up losing. So I feel bad for Al. He played well enough for this team to win and unfortunately, no reward for this one whatsoever. And I just think about the past two games, the Nets game. They're up 37 of 15 after the first quarter. They had a 28-point lead. Largest comeback from a Celtics opponent since February of 19. That was the Clippers. So it had been a while since you blow a game like that. And tonight, you had multiple chances to knock the Knicks out of the game, and you just could not do it. And there was this one uh, possession in the Nets game that just completely irritated me. They had four offensive rebounds on one possession. So they got five shots. Now, luckily, on that particular play, the Nets didn't score. But how do you give up four offensive rebounds on the same possession. That's an effort thing, right? And tonight, the thing that irritated you is they couldn't get stops late. Quickly gets to the lane, he hits a floater to make it 106-104. Josh Hart goes by Al, he gets a layup, and then Randall hits a step-back three to make it 111-104. So luckily, the Celtics find a way to force overtime, but I just felt like this team last year, when they needed stops, they could make them, and right now, they just can't make them. And one of the things that I look at, too, is they're giving up way too many Open shots. So they gave up 26 wide open threes in that game against Brooklyn. That means the closest defender is at least six feet away. And if you look at it on the season, the Celtics, or I should say, if you look at it since the All-Star Break, they're giving up 20.2 wide open threes per game. That's 29th in the league. Only one team has given up more open threes than the Celtics are post-all-star break. That's up from 17.3 prior to the break. So they're not getting out to shooters. And tonight, look, they were better. They gave up five threes in the first quarter, but then they shut it down a bit. But if you look at it in terms of the numbers in this game, the Knicks only shoot 13 to 36 from deep, 36.1%. I thought a lot of those were open that they just ended up missing them. The Knicks are not a great three-point shooting team, and they don't rely on it as much as some of the other teams in the league do. But I did feel like they're, I don't know what it is. It just seems like guys are a little bit late getting out to those rotations, which we didn't see last year. You look at the Celtics entering this game against the Knicks, post-All-Star break, 118.1 defensive rating, 23rd in the NBA. They were 110.6 pre All Star break. That's fourth in the league. One of the issues they've had is they're fouling teams like crazy. So, post All Star break, they're at 27.6 free throw attempts per game against. That's 26 in the NBA. Pre break, they were first to 20.7. So, they're fouling guys left and right. They gave up 26 in that game against the Nets, 34 in the Knicks game last Monday. Tonight, they were better, just 22 and in terms of regulation, I'm not going to count the overtime ones. 22 in regulation, and two, you had the late one because you followed Randall. So they were better tonight. But post-All-Star break, they've been hacking like crazy. A lot of that is with Grant Williams, the numbers I gave you on him. But the thing that stuck out to me tonight, it felt like the Knicks were getting to the basket whenever they really wanted to. And if you look at their two-point percentage tonight, they were 32 of 54. That's 59.2%. The Pelicans are the worst team in the NBA in terms of defending twos. It's at 57.1%. Tonight, the Knicks shot 59.2% from twos against the Celtics. And this is just something that is also annoying you is the Celtics defense in terms of they can't put out these fires, right? So it was Bridges on Friday. He goes for 38 points. He got to the line nine times. You look at it since the All-Star break. Miles Turner had 40 in the game against the Pacers. Embiid had 41. Mitchell had 44. Brooklyn had, in terms of uh, the game against Brooklyn, you had, as I mentioned there, you had 38 from Bridges. And then you had, of course, tonight, Emmanuel Quickly has 38 points. So since the All-Star break, you've given up three 40-point games. You've given up a 38-point game and another 38-point game tonight. I mean, I don't understand it. Like, you're supposed to have some of the best defenders in the NBA, and the Celtics can't make these stops. Quickly has 38. Randall has 31. R.J. Barrett, who sucks, had 29 points in this game. The Celtics' defense is just not good right now in terms of Post All-Star break, and we always hear about the offense, like Joe Mazzullo was talking the other day after the Nets game that, hey, it's a math game, that's why we lost. No, you lost because your defense wasn't good enough. It wasn't about your offense. Your defense was not good enough. And this is something that I'm shocked I'm saying it about this Celtics team, that their defense has been an issue because they were so good last year, but they've not been the same team. And look, their numbers have been pretty good overall in the season, but just some of the stuff that they were really good at last year, they're not this year. Like, for example, and I alluded to the fact that The Knicks were just getting whatever they wanted from two-point territory, getting downhill, right? Well, if you look at the isolation this year, and this is another thing that scares you about the Knicks because Brunson is so good in that, and he didn't play in this game, obviously. But the Celtics on isolation defense, they are right now 23rd in the NBA in points per possession, 0.97. Last season, they were at 0.80, which was first. Effective field goal percentage in isolation, 48.3%. That's 22nd. Last year, 39.7%. In terms of the effective field goal percentage that was first in the nba so they were first in the nba in isolation defense last season they're 23rd in points per possession this year and they're 22nd in effective field goal percentage like the Celtics' scheme last year was so good because they were switching everything and they would just stop you and this year it's just not the same guys are getting to the basket easy we've seen it the past couple of weeks here especially this team last year was predatorial from a defensive perspective right they were mean they were versatile And now we've seen them play really well in stretches, but we just don't see it as often as you need to. Like, that's alarming to me about the isolation stuff, because in the postseason, you're going to have to go up against elite scorers, and you're going to have to make stops. And it just seems like all these guys, Mitchell, Bridges, Quickly tonight, all these guys are just feasting on the Celtics defense. Like, there has got to be, I don't want to say a come-to-Jesus moment, because you're not at that point. You're still one of the better teams in the NBA. But you have got to be able to just put the vice grips on and stop some of these guys. It just... I'm really surprised that we're at this point with this team from a defensive perspective. You look at the half court, they've been horrible in their half court defense this year compared to last year. Cleaning the glass charts this, they have a 97.9 rating in the half court. That's 18th in the NBA. Last year, they were at 90.5, which was first. So we're talking about a 7.4 point drop off per 100 possessions. So their defense isn't stopping guys in isolation. They're not shutting down big time scores. Everybody's getting... 40 against the Celtics, and then they're getting beat badly in the half court. So I'm just really interested to see what this defense looks like the rest of the year. Can it get back to where it was last year? Probably not, but it's got to be better. You have great defensive players when you're talking about smart, when you're talking about white, when you're talking about Jason Tatum. And Rob Williams, when he's available, get to that in just a second here. But this team has got to find a way to get better defensively. And I feel like the coach is always talking about offense. He needs to start stressing the defense more in terms of these post game press conferences. Your defense is the issue right now. Your offense is not the issue. Your bigger issue right now is your defense. Okay. So I also was looking at this too. Like, if you look at going forward here and Speaking of like the postseason with this team, if they could ratchet up the defense, Robert Williams was out of course tonight. Joe Mazzulla says before the game, seven to ten games and or seven to ten days before he could possibly play again because he's dealing with a hamstring strain. So this is clearly not good. He's now played in just 28 games, and the C's, of course, now have played what? 65. So he's played in 43% of the games. Last year it was 61 out of 82, which was 74.4%, and he missed four games in the playoffs as well. And I just wonder if part of the issue with this team in terms of their defense is rob was the eraser last year where hey if you got beat rob would come over and he would block your shot and the celtics in rob's minutes defensively have been great 110.2 defensive rating that'd be fourth in the league but the thing about it is he is their best defender and i know marcus smart won the defensive player of the year but he's played just 678 minutes this year so it's tough to build this great defense when your biggest defensive weapon is the guy that is barely playing. Like, the Celtics defense was all geared around what Rob did in the switching scheme last year and Rob being the roamer off the ball. That's when they really took off. When they had Rob be the roamer and they put Al on the opposing big man, took Rob off the big man, and you're just never playing that way, right? But it isn't an excuse for the rest of the guys. Like, there's just way too many easy blow-bys. So you look at the previous four games before the Brooklyn game where Rob played. 26 minutes, 31 minutes, 29 minutes, and 31 minutes. It just feels... Like every time he's hovering around that 30-minute threshold, some sort of injury pops up, right? I think, and I know this is going to sound kind of crazy because I was just talking about the defense in terms of how it struggled this year. I just feel like right now I would bring Rob off the bench when he comes back because that seems to keep him at that 25 minutes. And the group that has been starting, 287 minutes with Derek White in with that group, they have a 121.8 offensive rating, 110.7 defensive rating, and a plus 11.1 net rating. So they are outscoring teams by more than 11 points per 100 possessions with White with the other four starters. And I just want to keep Rob Williams' minutes low because we've seen what a game changer he can be for this team when he's actually on the court. So if it was me and I'm making this decision, I'm just keeping Rob coming off the bench the rest of the season. I actually think with Al playing the five, you see how easy it is for them offensively with the spacing, especially if you have, what, five guys on the court, well, with the exception of smarts to some degree. But you have so much spacing when Al's at the five so it's me i would just separate those big man minutes up a little bit here but this is really the first part of the season where i've actually felt like legitimately worried about the celtics because some of the numbers are going in the wrong direction as it pertains to the defense one of your key reserves grant williams has just been playing really poorly and these close games i'm starting to get worried about the coach because of the lack of timeout usage and i know this is something that we continue to talk about time and time again but we keep seeing times where he isn't making the right decisions at the end of these games and it's costing this team all right a lot more to get into coming up next we're going to chat with Zach Cram from The Ringer we'll get into his article about Malcolm Brogdon being the sixth man of the year and also get into some stuff with the Red Sox as we get closer to opening day and just to note we recorded this with Zach prior to the game so we didn't get into the game against the Knicks with Zach Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from The Ringer, it is Zach Cram. Zach, thanks for hopping on, man. We really appreciate it. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so man, it's really the perfect time to have you because you had an article up today. Malcolm Brogdon is a throwback and deserving candidate for the sixth man of the year. And unfortunately, right now, he's dealing with a little bit of an injury, but he certainly made his case. And the six-man race you wrote, the six-man race doesn't care about advanced stats or teammates or anything beyond one basic question. Which bench player scores the most points? So it's crazy. You point out that 14 of the last 16 years, the sixth man of the year has been either first or second in bench scoring. So why do you think this is like you point out some of the stuff with like, the other awards? Is it just lazy? Like, is that what it is with the voters that vote for the sixth man of the year? I think to some extent it's kind of learned
0: behavior where that might have happened one or two times. Then voters thought, well, if the guy who's leading bench players and scoring won last year, then maybe that's the criteria I should be looking at this year. So because it's been happening for over a decade now, that's kind of inertia, right? That's what happens. Lou Williams jumps to the top of the list. Jamal Crawford jumps to the top of the list. I think to some extent that's what's expected out of a a useful sixth man is they come in and provide microwave scoring right away when your star player sits down. And to some extent that's fine, but when it's somebody like, Lou Williams winning three awards and Manu Ginobili only winning once, which, as I point out in the piece, happened the only year he led bench players in scoring, then I think it becomes out of whack, right? Like Manu (laughs) deserved way more than one award. Andre Iguodala should have won a couple times with the Warriors, and he never did.
1: That's crazy, man. So the one thing, too, with Brogdon that is interesting to me is just the fact that what the Celtics gave up for him was a first round pick in Aaron Neesmith. And I don't know if you were surprised that that's all they had to give up. Do you think it was just more so because he had such a track record with a bad injury history that all you had to give up was essentially a first round pick? Because obviously now you look back and you say, okay, this is an absolute steal.
0: I think probably he had played, you know, 60 games or fewer in uh, every season in Indiana, I think. And especially given where Indiana was entering the season when everybody thought they would be one of the teams contending for a top draft pick for Wenbin They haven't. They kept Miles Turner and Buddy Healed, But I thought the Brogdon trade was the start of that process and that Healed and Turner would follow him soon after. It's, what, a top 12 protected pick? And with how good Boston was going to be this season, I don't think that protection was ever going to come into play regardless. But even so, like, They did have protection in case Tatum and Brown both went down with injuries or something. So I thought that was one of the most underrated moves of the offseason. And we've seen how much it's paying off this season now.
1: Yeah. And one of the other things, Zach, that you point out in the article is one of the great numbers is he's basically nine percentage points higher than expected in his three-point shooting. He's shooting 46% from three this year, which is obviously a career high and he's leading the league. His effective field goal percentage is at a career high 58.4%. So what do you think is the biggest reason for his improvement from an efficiency standpoint, because obviously he's always been a really, really good player. But when you look at him this year, is it just, is it lesser defenders because they have Tatum and they have Jalen Brown? Like, why do you think he's been so much more efficient this year than he's been in previous years?
0: I think part of it is the quality of teammates. If you look back at his last season as a buck back in 2019, he shot 43% from three Mm. in his career in Milwaukee, he was over 40%. So I think having to create more of his shots, off the bounce by himself in Indiana might not have suited his gameplay as well as it does when, you know, he's handling the ball a lot still, but he's also taking a lot of catch and shoots when other players on uh, out of Boston's awesome perimeter rotation are able to drive and kick it to him. So I think that's part of it. But also, like you said, he's overperforming his expected field goal percentage by almost as much as Steph Curry. So when you're <laughs> at that level, I think to some extent, like maybe we shouldn't expect him to keep shooting 46% between now and, and June.
1: All right, so you point out too, or I should say that one of the things that I like about him is for the playoffs, I feel like he gets downhill and he gets to the basket all the time. Like if you did like his drives per game if you did drives per thirty six minutes, he would lead the team. He's tied with Jalen for the second most drives. But in that postseason series, or I should say that final series last year against Golden State, one of the issues was okay, Jason Tatum obviously played poorly Jalen Brown was making crazy shots, but he's turning the basketball over. It's just like they needed one more guy where it's like, okay, I can give this guy the ball and he can go get a basket. I just feel like we're experiencing Malcolm Brogdon right now, and it's great during the regular season. But I actually think he may help this team even more when they get to the playoffs.
0: Yeah, he also adds another player who allows them to play four small guys around either Williams or Horford. He's a very good mid-range shooter, too, and that, I think, becomes more important in the playoffs when defenses are able to key in and prevent the lays, uh, the layups and three-pointers. This season, he's at 46% from mid-range, and granted, wow. 46% from three is better than 46% from mid-range, but late in the shot clock, those shots are huge. And they were a guy short last year, like you said, but I think they have two potential players who can step up and fill that role this season. One is Brogdon and two is Derek White, who, yes, was on the team last year, but was pretty tentative in the playoffs. He would have games where it seemed like he was afraid to shoot. And he's just been a completely different player this season. He's been awesome. So between White and Brogdon coming off the bench, that gives them such a strong one through seven. And I think that sets them up really well to have a bench rotation in the playoffs.
1: Yeah, it's a great point on White. And Zach, I'd like to get your take on this because Celtics fans do get like a little mad about this, but I did this thing like last week about how Derek White has been better than Marcus Smart this season. Do you feel that way? I mean, all the numbers, of course, favor Derek White. I don't think Smart's been the same defender that he was a season ago. He's still great. Like, I'm not saying he's not a good defender, but Derek White's a great defender. What is he still second in the NBA in terms of total blocks for a guard? (laughs) He does a great job like getting around screens. I really think that he's been better than Smart this year.
0: I think so, too. I think Smart has probably been hampered by injuries in a way that beyond just keeping him out of games, has affected him when he's been able to be on the court. Going forward to the playoffs, I would rather have Marcus Smart, of course, given his track record. But yeah, yeah, I think White, you could argue, has been Boston's third best player this year and not be too out of line. I mean, all the advanced stats love him. Some of the advanced stats say he's their second best player, even ahead of Jalen Brown, uh, just because of how he's able to contribute both ways, because Boston has been so much better with him on the floor versus off. I think they're basically... A, a net rating of zero when White's been off the floor this year and a net rating of ten or eleven when he's been on the floor. That's not all because of Derek White, but he's been such a good two-way player. He was so good filling in when Smart was out with all of his shooting and scoring that I think this is this is the guy that they thought they were trading for last year when he was kind of hit and miss in the playoffs
1: all right. And one thing is right now they're dealing with this Robert Williams situation again where he's going to be out at least seven to ten days. He's dealing with a hamstring situation and we've seen the Celtics at times turn up their defense this year but it hasn't been that same elite group that it was a season ago and if you look at it obviously Rob I would have if I was going to vote for a defensive player of the year last year between the Celtics guys I would have given it to Rob over Marcus Smart he just impacts the game so much more as a big but do you think part of the reason they haven't been that elite defense is just because the stop and start with Robert Williams or the guys played like 659 minutes all season
0: That's part of it. Uh, To the point about Williams being out, I think that's why they traded for Mike Muscala at the deadline, which again, not to keep saying that every Celtics move is underrated and great, but I thought that Mike Muscala trade was underratedly great in (laughs) part because he provides Robert Williams insurance, especially come the playoffs. You don't want Al Horford as your lone big man. And also because Muscala adds an offensive dimension as a shooter that Williams doesn't. He's not you know, Williams's caliber as a defender, but especially to fill in minutes between now and the end of the regular season. And then if worse comes to worse in the playoffs and Williams can only give you 20-some minutes a night, kind of like he did for, for stretches of last postseason, that allows you to fill in uh, big man minutes without, you know, going all the way down to the loot coordinates of the world.
1: All right, so you guys have up at the ringer the odds machine. And you have the Celtics title chances at 16%, which is the best in the NBA. Cleveland is second at 15% followed by Denver, Memphis, and Milwaukee. So give us an idea of how this formula works. And then, because I'm kind of surprised that Cleveland's sitting there at number two on this list. So how, how do you go about doing these odds and how is Cleveland so high here? Yeah,
0: so a model is basically only as good as, as the data that it considers. And my model... First and foremost, considers point differential, so that's why Cleveland ranks so high. They are now mm. the number one point differential team in the league, the number one net rating team in the league, and there are some other factors that help them. You know, they're completely healthy, unlike most of the other top teams. They have the easiest remaining schedule in the NBA, and, and that gives them a chance to catch the Sixers for the three seed, which is important because if you look at the Eastern standings, there five very good teams and probably three not so good teams in the playoffs. So if Cleveland is able to catch the Sixers, who conversely have one of the hardest remaining schedules in the league, that would give Cleveland a really easy first round. But I think if you look at the Cavaliers, one of the numbers that stands out is that they have a below 500 record in clutch games this year. So even though they have a very good point differential and a very good net rating, their record doesn't totally reflect that. I think if you look at their point differential Like what the record should be based on that they have five fewer wins than expected and that's the biggest margin in the nba however i've done a lot of studying of this and performance in clutch situations in the regular season basically has no carryover to the playoffs at all and we've seen some examples of that in recent years right like boston last year was one of the worst clutch teams in the regular season they made the finals the year before that the bucks were below 500 in clutch games and then they won the finals, including, as you probably remember, a ton of really close games that they pulled out in the playoffs. So would I like personally, independent of the model, take Cleveland as the second most likely team to make the finals? Now, no, of course not. I would take Milwaukee over ahead of them. I would probably take Philadelphia ahead of them. I'd take Boston ahead of them. But I think what the model is saying is that teams with their profile in the past, teams that have a really good point differential that's maybe been masked by bad clutch performance have tended to overachieve.
1: Yeah, I got you. That makes sense. I am interested to see, like the Eastern Conference playoffs are going to be insane. There are it's deeper than I feel like it's been in a long time. Like you mentioned, it, it's five good teams. And I would, I would even say like Miami still scares me just because we've seen like in recent history, Miami gives the Celtics going back to the bubble. They beat him. And then last year, of course, the Jimmy Butler shot at the end. It's just like Spolster is such a great coach and it's going to be Missoula's first trip to the playoffs as the head coach, of course. So that, that team I'd even throw in there just because it's Miami
0: and and i think the knicks rise has made that so much more interesting to your point about the depth especially after the nets traded all their guys it kind of looked like there were four good teams and the first round might be a snoozer until they all played each other in the conference semifinals but now the knicks have been so good lately since the trade deadline since adding josh hart jalen brunson's been awesome i we're recording before they play boston today and i'm i'm very curious to see what happens there because the Knicks kind of maybe have their number and what happens if that's like a one seed versus five seed in the second round. Uh, so I think that just ratchets up the intrigue tremendously in the East.
1: Oh, and it'd be so great for the league too to have Boston and New York in the first oh my round. Gosh. I mean, second round, I should say that would be absolutely incredible. All right. So I wanted to get to this because I was going back one, through one of your articles where you looked at the winners and the losers from MLB's winter meetings, is, is, uh, essentially. So you had Xander Bogarts as the biggest contract over expectation, right? The projection was seven for one hundred and eighty-nine. He gets eleven for two hundred and eighty million dollars, so ninety-one million dollar difference. So San Diego, by the way, they also signed Machado to a big deal. They've Darvish signed. They're saying they're going to get Soto done. Like, where is all this money coming from with San Diego, and how can they afford to keep having like? Contracts that are going to be bad at the end. like I, I I was shocked when Xander got that money, not that he left the Red Sox, but two hundred and eighty million dollars for Bogarts at his age. It seems insane.
0: I think some of those contracts might look pretty poor on the back end. But San Diego is going to have five awesome years before that happens. And for a team that doesn't have much historic success for a team that has to compete with the Dodgers out in the NOS, West, I think this is what you have to do to compete. And you ask where the money's coming from. I, I think, First of all, the the owners are flushed with money, and especially with the new national TV contracts and the sale of BAM Tech and, and all the other ways that owners have made tens of millions of dollars over the years, that helps. But I also think if you look at attendance, the, the Padres' ability to increase their attendance because people are so excited about this team is huge. I think there was an article by Stephanie Epstein in Sports Illustrated recently about how the Padres' like PR office is overrun with, with local companies that want to sponsor them. Remember, mm. they're the only big four team left in the city now that the Chargers are gone. So if people are excited about the Padres and they can add a million fans over the course of a season, which they're basically able to do. They were, I'm looking now, fifth in attendance last year. And the top four teams were the Dodgers, the Cardinals, the Yankees, and Atlanta. Those are four historically big market teams, four teams that are among the best in the majors, have the most passionate fans. And then the Padres are number five. So if you think about how expensive attending a baseball game is now, if you add a million fans paying, you know, $50 a game on average plus food, that adds up pretty quickly and can maybe help you afford a, a Bogart and a
1: yeah, I mean I give them credit, they're certainly going for it. And I didn't know that about the attendance. That's crazy. I would I would love I've never been to that park, but it's so cool looking. Like I remember when the All Star game was there a couple of years ago. It's just a really, really cool looking park. All right. So the Red Sox obviously they lose Bogarts, they lose JD, Matt Strom's gone as well, Waka gone, Avaldi gone, and then you look at some of the additions, they bring in <laughs> Justin Turner, they give Yoshida the big contract to come over from Japan, they pick up Adam Duvall. After the injury to story, because Kike is now going to play shortstop. They had a Jansen and Martin, which was they really needed help in the bullpen. I mean, they had the third most meltdowns, 101. Their bullpen ERA was 459, which was 26 in Major League Baseball. Schreiber was really good for them, but he was on fumes by the end of the season because Cora had nobody else that he could trust in that bullpen. So I liked that they upgraded the bullpen. I like bringing in Yoshida and Turner, both like low strikeout guys, especially Turner, who's done it for a long time. But what did you make of the Red Sox offseason? Did you like it?
0: I liked the end of it more than the start. I think it was such a sour beginning with the guys they lost and they didn't seem to you know, want to upgrade anywhere. The Devers extension I think was the best move just because they lost bets they lost Bogart so at least they locked one of those guys down long term I think Boston kind of they don't seem to know whether they're in or they're out and you saw that at last year's deadline too where they traded some guys but then they also added what Tommy Pham and Eric Hosmer and it seems like they're they have one foot in and one foot out and even heading into this season I think they have the biggest difference between their floor and their ceiling of any team in the division. And that's both statistical based on the projections and also just kind of by the eye test, because if you look at the rotation alone, like, is Chris Sale going to be an ace or is he going to throw five innings again and be hampered by his injury? Corey Kluber, you have no idea what you're going to get from him. You don't know what you're going to get from some of the young guys like Houck or Whitlock. Is Whitlock even... Going to be ready for the start of the season is james paxton going to be like a chris sale uh kind of clone where he could be awesome or he could not pitch at all and i think that's going to be the hinge point for their season is is the rotation going to be one of the worst in the league or is it c- going to be competent enough to allow that bullpen which i agree with you has been much improved and that lineup which still looks pretty good even if not quite like at the top of the league but like if yoshida is the real deal i think that's a pretty good lineup but is the rotation going to be there?
1: Yeah. And Paxson already is dealing with an injury. His first start of spring what training. What a surprise. Yeah. And he's actually and, like he's throwing the ball well, too, in that game.
0: I say that as someone who loves James Paxson for a very long time. I was just like, can you put it together for one year because it's going to be so good? But he's let me down enough times and I think just been injured too many times to actually believe in him at this point. And I think for the most part, that leaves them really shallow in the rotation. I don't think many of the guys at AAA are ready to fill in. And I ju- could just see a lot of bad innings at the, you know, from the four and five starters in June. Once a few guys get hurt, that just leaves them unable to catch up with the Yankees or the Blue Jays, the race.
1: Yeah, it's funny, like before the season, we're saying, hey, they have seven guys for five spots. Like this is a good problem to have. It's like the reason you have those seven guys is because a lot of them have injury histories, right? That's why you need all those starting pitchers in this Red Sox rotation. So you mentioned basically they middled it last year at the deadline. And it's interesting, too, because they could have got underneath the CBT and they cost themselves. They went from 70 and 71 in terms of drafting to 133 and 134 when you weren't going anywhere. J.D. Martinez and Nate Evaldi aren't on the team anymore. That's a move that they definitely should have moved on from those guys to get under. I mean, what was the point of paying the tax? You were worse than the Baltimore Orioles. It just made no sense. So that kind of brings me to bloom because... He had the Mookie trade, which, of course, everybody crushed at the time. And basically, all you've gotten back was Alex Verdugo, who's an everyday player. But still, I mean, he had some issues last year, was not in great shape. And we'll see. He looks like he's in better shape this year. We'll see if he can finally put it all together this season. But then you think back to 2021, he made some nice moves, right? I mean, he brought over Schwarber at the deadline, who really worked out for them. Prior to the season, they trade for Renfro. And then after that, they trade Renfro for to the Brewers, basically to buy some prospects, and they don't bring in an everyday right fielder, right? Basically, Jackie Bradley Jr. plays right field. They just let Schwarber walk. They bring in a guy like Jake Diekmann that he just could not throw strikes whatsoever. So it does feel like this year, with all the changes they've made, I mean, we went through it. This is a totally different-looking team outside of, like, Rafael Devers, even Kike Hernandez. He's not going to be playing in the outfield. He's going to be playing short. It really does feel like, to me, because you could argue two out of his three years were bad, at least at the major league level. If he has another bad year. It does really feel like to me, this is make it or break it time for Bloom.
0: I think that he has done a decent job getting the small things right. One of the moves also grabbing Garrett Whitlock as a rule five pick yeah. was awesome, right? It, it, not just because he's good, but because you stole him from the Yankees. <laughs> but if you don't get the big things right, I'm not sure if the small things matter as much kind of. Or reverse of, I remember a few years ago, I wrote a piece about whether Danny Ainge was good at drafting for the Celtics because there were so many of those like late lottery or mid-first round picks that he missed on, guys like Nee Smith and James Young. And it turned out after I ran the numbers, yeah, he missed on a lot of those guys, but just getting Jason Tatum right ahead of Fultz was so important that it you know swamped everything else. And it turned out he was a pretty good drafter. Bloom is kind of the reverse where Yeah, even if you get those small moves right, like if you're trading bets and not getting a good return for him, you need to get so many other moves right to to compensate for that. And if you're losing Bogarts for basically nothing, you need to get so much else right to compensate for that. So from a a small picture perspective, maybe he's making some good moves. I think like Chris Martin specifically was one of my favorite reliever signings of this offseason. But when you're not getting the big things right, I don't know if it matters as much.
1: Yeah, it's a great point. I've never heard that comparison before. It's perfect, though. I wish I thought of that. The, he's the opposite <laughs> of Danny Ainge. That's pretty good. I like that. Yeah, Chris Martin. I guess a, he
0: does make a lot of trades. So maybe he's like Ainge in that regard.
1: Oh, he certainly does. He likes to make a lot of trades. It, I love the Martin signing, too. I mean, I was t- talking about the issues of this bullpen. Last year, they walked the ballpark, too, and he had the lowest walk rate in all ma- of Major League Baseball for Leavers last year. So I really like that addition as well. So I got to get your take as like a numbers guy. So Tristan Cassis last year, he comes up from the time that he comes up. He has the second highest walk rate of Major League Baseball behind just Aaron Judge, who teams are like pitching around. Uh, he showed some power. I mean, it's only 95 plate appearances, obviously, but he hit five home runs. Where are you with Cassis? Do you like him?
0: I do. I think he is a really interesting prospect, in part just because as a first base prospect, you're not adding any defensive value for almost all of them. You're not adding any base running value. So you basically just have to mash. And I I think Cass will. he has hit all throughout the minor leagues. I think he's always had a really high walk rate too. So like, is he going to walk the second highest rate in baseball to your point? Probably not, but triple a 15% walk rate, double a 15% walk rate, single a 20% walk rate. So I think that gives him kind of a foundation where he's going to, to hit well. The question is, does he tap into that power? Is he more like I don't know, a, a Nick Johnson type who was always a first baseman with a really high on base percentage, but because he didn't have the power, he wasn't ever at like one of the top first basemen in the league. And I think Casas has the ability to hit with power. He showed that in the minor leagues as well. So I would give him the benefit of the doubt, especially for someone who's so young, but it's interesting. Uh, do you think they're going to use him at the top of the lineup in the middle of the lineup? I think that somebody with that high a walk rate could be like a good leadoff or number two hitter. And Uh, with him and Devers at the top, with that kind of lefty ability, that'll make it difficult on opposing pitchers.
1: You know, it's interesting you mentioned that, Zach, because he, uh, Cora hit him leadoff a couple of games ago in spring training. And I was thinking, this kind of reminds me of like when they had Schwarber and Schwarber would hit leadoff for them, right? Like he doesn't look like a leadoff hitter, but he walks a ton and he hits for power. And the other thing, I just love the fact that he sees so many pitches. And I really felt like Schwarber sort of change the dynamic of that lineup in 2021, where he sees so many pitches and you've got the big guys coming up after him, the Devers of the world, the JDs of the world at the time, it makes it so much more difficult for those pitchers like having to deal with a guy like Cassis or like Kyle Schwarber. Mm-hmm. I would love him to hit leadoff. Like, I think that would be really cool to have him hit leadoff. I think more likely he'll be somewhere in the middle of the lineup. I think they want to keep Rafi in the two hole, which I totally agree with keeping Raffy second. I would my guess is that he'll lead off Kike to start the season. That would be my guess, is he'll have Kike Hernandez lead off and then probably have Turner hit third. And then I would guess he, he's had Yoshida hitting cleanup at times. Like I thought Yoshida was a lock to be the leadoff hitter when they so got did him, I. But yeah, it looks like he really likes the or Cora really likes his power. So I think he's gonna hit in the middle of the lineup, it feels like. They really need,
0: I think, one of those right-handed bats to to jump out, whether it's Hernandez bouncing back or Duval, they need somebody. Because there's a chance that their top four hitters are all lefties with with Verdugo and Yoshida and Cassis and, and Devers. And you need somebody to break that up. Justin Turner is older now. How much can he stay on the field? That could be tricky.
1: Yeah, they. I think Duvall, it's got to be the guy. I mean, what, he had 38 home runs two years ago. So that's a guy that they could certainly use. And hopefully he can stay healthy, too, because just like this whole team, he's another guy with a really not a great track record as it pertains to injuries. It's
0: almost like there's a, a, a Xander Bogarts or Trevor Story size hole in terms of a right handed power hitter. <laughs> I
1: know. And I like it's crazy. Like they once like when Story played last year, they were actually like good. Like his numbers were not great, but they actually won like won most of the time when Story was on the field. And I, I like legitimately feel bad for the guy now because it's like, all right, he got to spring. He signed late last year. Then he has the kid. He leaves spring training. Then he gets injured. Then he gets injured again. Then before this season, we're hearing, oh, he's, he looks good. The arm's good. He's going to play shortstop. Then he's hurt again. He's probably going to miss this entire season. And he's always going to be compared to Xander because we were all right when we said, hey, Heimblum signed this guy to replace Xander Bogarts. And he said, no, no, that's that's not what we're doing here. That's exactly what they did. So I, I yeah. like feel bad for the guy. We know he's like a super hard worker. Like there was a thing last year, Zach, where People are upset that he didn't talk to the media after the game. He didn't know that he was supposed to. He was down hitting in the cage and everyone's talking about he's not accountable and all this. It's like, well, somebody from the PR staff should have told him that it's time to talk to the media. He just went. He figured nobody wanted to talk to him because he didn't play well. Yeah, he's, he was also kind
0: of the fourth banana with all the the great free agent source stops last year. So I hope he bounces back, too, just because I, I always like when players who are good in Colorado succeed outside of courts as well. And that obviously applies to story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully I I, I just feel bad for the guy. I mean, the, he really he has not caught a break. He got a lot of money, but he hasn't caught a break since he signed with the Red Sox. All right. So before I let you go, so the Yankees added Carlos Rodon, who's somebody I wanted the Red Sox to go after for years. And they put him, they got Cole, they got Cortez. We know about that rotation. They bring back Anthony Rizzo. Judge gets the big deal. Then you look at Toronto. They add Bassett to go along with Gosman and Manoa. Manoa is filthy. I, I can't stand the guy. I mean, he's taunting Bobby Dahl back and Franchi Cordero when he strikes him. I was like, you, you realize these guys strike out like 35% of the time, <laughs> right? Like, it, it's not a big achievement, but he is nasty. I mean, the guy's a really, really good pitcher. But so how do you kind of handicap this division right now?
0: I would give the Yankees the advantage. I think they have more depth than than the Blue Jays do in their rotation with with, you know, the addition. But I also think that it's kind of a three-team race. The projections say that the Yankees are in the lead, but the projections always underrate Tampa because the Rays have the ability whenever anybody gets hurt to just plug in, you know, random AAA reliever who will have a 2.4 ERA in 60 innings. So (laughs) I think it's a three-team race. And then the Orioles and Red Sox would have the ability to challenge for that last wildcard spot. I wish Baltimore as as a neutral fan had done a lot more this offseason because They took such a great big leap forward. They have more prospects on the way. And they added Kyle Gibson and Cole Irvin. And I thought, like, speak of teams that should have gone for O'Don, he could have been such a great addition and still given them one of the lowest payrolls in the league. So I think Baltimore and Boston are teams that could have done more and will have to settle for fighting for fourth place as a result.
1: Yeah, I was surprised with the Baltimore thing, too, because I remember we were hearing all these reports like, hey, Baltimore is ready to spend and they didn't really spend anything. So maybe I shouldn't have been too surprised because it's Baltimore.
0: Yeah, Adam Fraser's not really going to do it to lengthen that lineup.
1: <laughs> Certainly not. All right. That is Zach Cram from The Ringer. Make sure to check out his article on Malcolm Brogdon. It's a really good read. Zach, thanks so much for the time, man. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Have a great night. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Zach Cram talking about Malcolm Brogdon, who should be the sixth man of the year. We'll see if it actually ends up happening that way for Malcolm Brogdon. So I did want to get to some Patriots. So Karen Garigian had the reporting that she's hearing that Matt Patricia could end up on the Eagles staff as the linebackers coach. So we're recording on Sunday. This may happen by Monday morning, Monday afternoon, that he may actually get a job with a different organization. But I think we're now at the point where... (laughs) We knew he was going to be gone. We just didn't know where he was going to go or what position he'd be taking with a different organization. Remember, he was interviewing for the Broncos defensive coordinator position. He, of course, didn't get that. But just think about that. What would he really do here? He kind of has to move on, right? Like you have guys on the defensive side of the ball right now and Steve Belichick and Rod Mayo that are obviously both qualified to be the defensive coordinator. So he's not taking that job. You don't want him coaching the offensive line, right? And you brought in Clem anyway to be the offensive line coach. But the Pats O-line was a disaster last season when he was the offensive line coach. So you wouldn't want to keep him around for that. So there's really just not a fit for Matt Patricia. He's not going to go back to doing front office stuff, right? You don't want him to do that. I mean, think about some of the bad contracts they've handed out. So it would be really, if you think about it, for him, humiliating if he stayed on the staff and got a demotion, right? He's not the offensive coordinator anymore. He's not the play caller if he was coaching like a certain position group, I mean, it would just be a bad look for Patricia. So it's almost like the guy needs a fresh start. So we all kind of had an idea that he was going to have, if he was still here, a minimal role with the organization. But I don't think anybody's surprised. It's just it didn't work. And he doesn't really have a position with the team anymore, unfortunately, for Patricia. So I just wanted to mention that. But I did want to get to this nugget. So Dan Graziano reported that the Patriots have talked to Jacoby Myers about a contract But there hasn't been much progress, and he's expected to hit the market on March 15th. So this is really an interesting decision here for the Patriots because you look at some of the numbers. He was really good last year. He's been really good as a member of this organization. 3.1% drop rate over the past three seasons via pro football focus. That is third in the entire NFL during that stretch, right? Then you look at last season, 57.4 yards per game. That's first on the team by a wide margin, about 16 more than anybody else last year in terms of the yards per game. If you look at the targets, 96 targets last year for Jacoby Myers, that was 37 more than any other receiver on the team. Now, Stevenson as a running back was targeted a bunch, but in terms of the actual guys that play receiver, 37 more targets than anybody else. And he got better, right? Last year, Jacoby Myers did. Last season was his best year. If you look at the numbers, when he was targeted two years ago, the passer rating was an 81 this past season, it was at 116, which was seventh among players that were targeted at least 70 times. So sort of the aggravating part about this is the Patriots found this guy as an undrafted free agent. They developed him. And now because he's played so well and the receiver market isn't great in terms of the free agents, he's the number one guy on the market. He's going to get something in the fifteen sixteen 16 million dollar range. So. Think about all the bad deals that the Patriots have given out to weapons, right? Like Nelson Aguilar, two for 22. That was a bad contract. Jonu Smith, four for 50. That's a bad contract. And if you think about it, the one guy that deserves a contract is Jacoby Myers, and it doesn't look like he's going to get it here, right? And we know now that he's a Drew Rosenhaus guy, of course, and he's going to get a big deal like Rosenhaus is going to get this guy paid. And I don't know why they didn't really try to get something done before it got to this point. Like, this should have already been taken care of where Jacoby Myers was signed long-term with the Patriots. It shouldn't have got to the point where he can actually become a free agent. But we talk about the issues in terms of the weapons all the time. Myers is the guy that has the best rapport with Mac Jones, and he's the guy that really Mac Jones trusts the most on the team. So it's great right now that the Patriots brought in a real coordinator in Bill O'Brien, and that's a major plus for Mac Jones. Nobody's diminishing that whatsoever, but... We're talking about, really, if you think about going into this year for Mac, it's a make it or break it year, right? Because you have to find out if he's your long-term quarterback. I mean, you're going to have to make a decision after next season on whether or not you're picking up that fifth-year option. So it's a huge year for Mac Jones. And having his most trusted receiver gone is a bad thing. It's not a good thing if Jacoby Myers leaves this team, right? The only thing that would justify it is if you get a real true number one, right? If the Patriots get a real number one receiver, okay, I'm all in and I won't have an issue with them losing Jacoby Myers, right? Because look, if you get in on the trade market, Jerry Judy and Hopkins and Mike Evans, all these guys we've been talking about and hearing they could possibly be traded, that's fine because, all right, if you're subtracting Jacoby Myers, you need to go out there and get a stud receiver to justify letting Jacoby Myers go, right? And I just feel like, especially after last year, everything you do should be Hey, how does this affect Mac, right? Every move you're making to the offense, that's the question the Patriots have to ask themselves. Hey, how is this for Mac? Well, Bill O'Brien's a really good offensive coordinator. So, yes, this helps him. Well, what does it mean if you lose Jacoby Myers? Well, that's not good for the quarterback, right? Unless there is another thing that you do in terms of bringing in a truly bona fide number one option. And it just feels like right now, it's almost like a given to me that it feels like Jacoby Myers is gone, unfortunately, right? And if they don't find a way to replace him, it would just be. Another example of this organization failing their young quarterback last year, the failure was, hey, Matt Patricia and Joe Judge are the guys that are in charge of the offense. That was a failure. Not playing Kendrick Bourne going from what, 52 percent of the snaps to 44 percent of the snaps. That was bad for the quarterback. Having Matt Patricia also be the offensive line coach that was bad for Mac Jones. So all this stuff added up last year. Don't make the same mistakes that you made last year, this year. Now you've already solved one of those issues with Bill O'Brien, but you get what I'm saying here is they need to do things to help the quarterback. And if there isn't a true number one weapon on this team and you lose Jacoby Myers, the weapons are worse than they were last season. Okay. All right. So I did want to get to the Bruins because they pick up that 4-2 win over the Rangers on Saturday afternoon. They've now won 10 straight and Remember, this was after they had their first, I would say, tough stretch of the season where they lost four or five. Not like the I'm not saying the schedule was like tough. Obviously, the schedule's going to be who you're playing. It doesn't really matter. Like, I'm not saying it was a tough portion of the schedule. I'm just saying for the first time all season, (laughs) the Bruins hit some adversity where they had dropped four or five. And I'm starting to think like, okay, now one of those losses in overtime, but okay, maybe they come back to reality a little bit and they're maybe they're not the wagon we've been seeing all season long. Not that I didn't think they were the best team in the NHL, but maybe they'd come back from this historic pace where they're going to break all the records, the point records, the win records, etc. And now (laughs) they've rattled off 10 in a row after going through that tough stretch, right? It's their longest winning streak of the season, and it's their longest since the 13-14 season. So instead of getting worse as the season goes on, the Bruins are actually getting better. Like, they continue to get better. And Bertuzzi comes over at the trading deadline, contributes right away. The first goal, of course, he feeds Coyle. Just a beautiful pass from Bertuzzi. And that was one of the things, if you looked at some of the advanced numbers, like his passing was really good when he was in Detroit. So that's something to look forward to going forward. And then, of course, you got the shorthanded goal where Coyle finds Nosek. And then Marshawn finds Bergeron for a goal that was just a stupid pass by Marshawn. Unbelievable. And then the pasta goal was fantastic, right? You had Krejci leave it for McAvoy. McAvoy finds pasta and pasta with a one-timer. I mean, the Bruins were really, really good in this game against the Rangers. And that's a talented team, right? We know, especially after they added Patrick Kane, Vladimir Tarasenko came over before Kane. And I get it. They're still getting used to playing to each other. But the Bees yesterday, that game against the Rangers. They were the far superior team. And that Rangers team is loaded. I would also say, I thought Coyle was really good in this game, I referenced some of the points, but he flies under the radar with this team because of, of course, all the stars that they have, right? (laughs) Because they have so many big names on the team that you don't really think about Coyle, but he's really the perfect third-line center, really good in the defensive end, and the bees have been, by far, the best penalty kill in the NHL this season. If you look at the numbers, they're 86.6% on the penalty kill, despite, of course, they did give up a goal yesterday, but... Winnipeg is second at 83.3 percent. The Bruins at 86.6 percent. So the gap is larger than between the Bruins and Winnipeg compared to Winnipeg and the team that's 14th in the penalty kill, which is the Predators. That's how much better the Bruins have been than anybody else on the penalty kill. And Coyle specifically, he's second on the team in total penalty kill minutes at 156 and 25 seconds. Only Brandon Carlo has played more now. Forbert would be ahead of Coyle, but of course, he missed a bunch of times. So Coyle's second on the team in penalty kill Millett. So he's just a grinder. And of course, he's the leader of that shutdown line. And what he does in the defensive end is just so impactful for this team. So naturally, we're going to talk about Bergeron. We're going to talk about Pasternak and McAvoy and Lindholm and Krejci. But man, the third line is part of what makes this team so special. They're just so deep. One other note is, first of all, Bees Rangers would be a great Eastern Conference Finals because it's Boston, it's New York. It would be awesome. And there's a ton of star power on both teams. And I mean, New York, though, they would have to go through a gauntlet just to get there. Right now, they would get the Devils in the first round. The Devils have played well, of course, this year. And then Carolina is, of course, first in the Metropolitan Division. So you'd have to beat New Jersey and you'd have to beat Carolina. And we know Carolina's given the Bruins some trouble as well. And that's one thing that jumps out to me about the Bruins when you juxtapose what New York has to go through compared to the Bruins, right? So the Bees are going to get either the Islanders or the Penguins in the first round. Heck, maybe even Buffalo if they squeak in because the Islanders is dealing with these injuries right now with Barzella with the lower body injury. Of course, that happened against the Bruins. Actually, it was Craig Smith who ended up injuring Barzella. Not that it was on purpose or anything. Craig Smith, of course, not on the team anymore, but Barzella's out. So the big thing for the Bruins is they don't really have to deal with this tough first round series, right? Because... Tampa and Toronto are going to beat up on each other. Those are two really good teams and the Bruins are going to have a much easier path in the first round. So that series where those two teams are taking so much out of each other could be really helpful for the Bruins, right? It's almost like we talk about this with the Celtics, right? Where you want them to get the number one seed because it means you only play one of Milwaukee and Philadelphia. And I would pick the Celtics to beat Philadelphia if it's a 2-3 matchup. The Celtics own Philly, but The thing is, that series would take a lot out of you because we know the physicality that that team plays with, especially with Joel Embiid. And I kind of liken that to this potential playoff run for the Bruins, where they are going to get the right path, where they don't have to play Tampa or Toronto in the first round. Those teams have to go up against each other. So it does work out really well for the Bruins when you look at it from that perspective. All right. I did want to get to this. We started this the other day, real excited for this. We have a fun new segment as FanDuel's coming to Massachusetts, and you guys are going to get to participate. To get fired up, I wanted to take a look at some of the biggest, I wish I could have bet on that moment so over the past 20 years. FanDuel has given me the odds from eight different games, and we set up this fun bracket to figure out which is the favorite. Okay, today we're going to talk through the second to first round matchups, right? And you can find the poll on the ringer Twitter account to vote for which one you would have gotten in on the action if you could go back and you could bet on one of these games you can go back and vote on the Ringer Twitter account. And by the way, we have the results from the first two quarterfinals matchups. The 0-4 Sox comeback beat the Kelly O'Linick game. Not a shocker. In a landslide. They got 92% of the votes to the 0-4 Sox. The unbelievable series against the New York Yankees. And that Celtics-Wizards game, of course, from 2017. I'll always have a soft spot for that game. I just, I don't know why. I was like obsessed with that Wizards-Celtics rivalry for a couple of years. All right. The Patriots Seahawks Super Bowl actually beat the Patriots Chiefs AFC title game. And I get it. Malcolm Butler interception. And it was the Super Bowl. Man, the Pats Chiefs game was absolutely insane to me. But it was I mean, the Pats Seahawks beat that one. They won 86 percent of the vote. I thought that would be a lot closer. Maybe I just overrate the Chiefs game. I don't know. Like I thought that Chiefs game was unbelievable. So I was surprised. I wasn't surprised that the O four. 4 Red Sox got 92% of the vote over the Kelly Olenek game, but I was surprised that this Patriots-Seahawks game got 86% of the vote against that Chiefs-Patriots game. All right, so today we get to the 2-7 matchup and the 3-6 matchup in our FanDuel. I wish I could have bet on that bracket. Okay, so the two seed, the Patriots-Falcons Super Bowl against the number seven seed, which is game five of the ALCS between the Red Sox and the Astros. So... FanDuel gave us the odds from when the Patriots and the Falcons, when the score was 28 to 9, the odds actually peaked at plus 1600. That's what you could have got if you bet on that game at that particular point in time. So this is a very, very strong two seed, right? Because remember, the Patriots, they get a field goal to make it 28 to 12 with five minutes and seven seconds left in the third quarter. Okay, then there's a third and one at the Falcons 36. So the Falcons have the ball. Dante Hightower, the strip sack. And then you're thinking, okay. They actually have a real chance here because, hey, if you score, you make it a one score game right after the fumble from Matt Ryan. So the Patriots go right down the field. Brady finds Amendola for the touchdown. And then you get that awesome. Remember the two point conversion? We actually talked to James White about this, where Tom fakes like the snaps going over his head, direct snap to James White. He runs into the end zone. It was awesome. And I don't know, but that's like when I really started to believe that they were going to win that game. I'm not going to lie and say, hey, when it was 28 to nine or when it was 28 to three, I thought the Patriots were still going to win. But When they had that strip sack, when Hightower had that strip sack, I thought the Patriots are going to win. But then the Falcons get the ball back with just under six minutes left and they get pressure on Matt Ryan near midfield. He climbs the pocket, remember, and he throws the ball to Julio Jones right on the sidelines and Julio Jones makes one of the greatest catches I have ever seen. I still don't know how he got his second foot down, right? So at that moment, after being so confident, hey, the Patriots are going to win this game, right? You felt like, oh, damn. They're gonna lose because the Falcons—they're now up to the Patriots' 22-yard line. Points should be on the board, right? It should be a lock that you're scoring on that possession if you're the Falcons, and that would have given them at the very least an 11-point lead late in the fourth quarter. But what happens? Second and 11 from the 23 with 3:56 left. Matt Ryan drops back to pass. Why? Why? Why are they passing the ball there? Right? It makes no sense. Trey Flowers sacks him. They lose 12 yards. Then on third and 23. They drop back to pass again. Chris Long gets a holding. He draws a holding call on Jake Matthews. So it goes to third and 33 at the 45, and then they end up having a punt. So they went from first and 10 at the Patriots, 22, to fourth and 33 at the 45. They lost 23 yards. Just absolutely insane, right? So then you knew after that, oh, yes, the Patriots are going to score. And that's when you felt like, yes, they are going to win this game. The Patriots, they force the punt. They go down the field. They tie things up at 28. Tom to James White, the hero of the game. And then the two point conversion. And you had the crazy Edelman catch during that drive. Remember 23 yards. And that's when we see the replay. And it's one of the great calls Joe Buck, at least in my opinion, has had where Edelman is like pointing that he catches the ball and they show the replay. And Joe Buck, just like us, like experiencing the replay for the first time, he's seeing the replay, says, Oh, that's a catch. And it ended up being a catch. We all know the great catch by Edelman. But so then you win the coin toss in OT and you knew, okay. Game's over. Patriots are going to win. So the Patriots go right down the field. James White has that touchdown where you're waiting for a second. Everybody's running on the field. Edelman doesn't know if it's a touchdown yet. Belichick tells Edelman it's a touchdown. It's just amazing. Absolutely insane. LeGarrette Blunt tackles James White in the end zone. Just unbelievable. So that is the number two seed. Okay, so let's get to the number seven seed. Game five of the 2018 ALCS. Okay, the Sox were plus 165 on the money line. Okay, this is why this is so interesting. So remember... That game, David Price started because Chris Sale couldn't go. He was dealing with an injury. So Chris Sale was not pitching in that game, or that could have been when he was dealing with the illness. Remember, he had a bunch of stuff in the 18 postseason. So Price, he had not won a game in the postseason for the Red Sox until game two of this series. Now, in game two, the Red Sox won that game, but he was not good. He gave up four earned and four and two thirds, but the Red Sox won the game. But you weren't feeling confident about David Price. So Chris Sale can't go, so David Price is going to go on short rest, game five, Minute Maid Park, and Justin Verlander's on the other side, right? And I felt like, at the time, I remember saying this, I felt like this is a great spot for David Price, because the fans couldn't be too upset if he wasn't good in that game, right? First of all, nobody expected him to win that game with his postseason demons, and secondarily, Justin Verlander's on the other side, and he's going on short rest. Like Nobody had expectations for David Price, so I almost felt like Nobody thought David Price was going to pitch well in that game. So it's kind of takes some of the pressure off David Price, right? And what does he do? He shoves six innings, just three hits. He was tremendous. David Price beat Justin Verlander in a clincher at Minute Maid Park. Like Verlander is the best pitcher of his generation. David Price went in there and he beat that Astros team. And remember, J.D. took Verlander deep in the third inning to give the Sox a 1-0 lead. And then young Rafi goes opposite field in the sixth inning off Verlander, barely gets over where those Crawford boxes are at Minute Maid Park in left field, and there's a 98-mile-an-hour fastball up in the zone. Rafi gets it just out of the ballpark. He's like 21 years old when he does that, and it makes it a 4 nothing game. They end up winning 4-1. to one. It was just an amazing, amazing game because of everything that happened. And as a fan base, we were, like, done with David Price. Remember, he had a bunch of stuff going on. He had the whole situation With Dennis Eckersley, just a lot of controversy with David Price. He was missing games because he had allergies. Remember that whole thing? But anyway, he should have been the MVP of the World Series after that. He was tremendous. And that Astros game, I truly believe it changed everything for David Price. It really did in terms of his confidence. It was just an epic win that I don't think many people thought the Red Sox were going to win, especially when you consider that David Price was starting. Okay, so that's the 2-7 matchup. Let's get to the 3-6. The three seed is the Patriots-Rams Super Bowl. Okay, the first one, of course, Super Bowl 36. So, and then the sixth seed is Game 7 Celtics-Cavaliers in 2008. The Pierce-LeBron duel, which was epic, right? So let's start with the three seed. The Pats were plus 700 on the money line. Massive underdogs. And it's the greatest show on turf, right? They're going for their second Super Bowl in three seasons. Two MVPs, Kurt Warner, Marshall Falk. And remember what happened. The Patriots, before the game, decided to be introduced as a team. And you had goosebumps, right? It was so cool. The New England Patriots have decided to be introduced as a team. The Rams are introducing their offense, not the Patriots. They come out as a team. It was just awesome. And the Patriots defense, outstanding in that game. Remember, they lit up Marshall Fuck. We actually talked to Ted Johnson about this during the season when we we're talking to him about the old one team, is their whole game plan was every snap, hit this guy. So even if he's not in the play, just hit this guy. And they did it every play. They were teeing him up, Right. And then, of course, you had the tie-law pick six where Mike Vrabel's pressuring one or punishes him. And Ty returns it, of course, for a touchdown. But the Rams, they fought back naturally. And remember, they tie the game up 17-17 with about 90 seconds left. Patriots have no timeouts. John Madden famously said the Patriots should play for overtime. Of course, they didn't play for overtime. Brady has a couple of dump-offs J.R. Redmond. They're starting to move the ball. He then finds Troy Brown for 23 yards. Then he finds Wiggy Jermaine Wiggins for six yards. It sets up the field goal for Adam Vinatieri. Brady's like hitting blood so after the game like we did it was just unbelievable that was the start of the dynasty just an incredible moment we had not had a title in Boston since what the 86 Celtics so that started basically 20 years of championships and I really believe that that win for the Patriots it sort of pushed the other franchises to win right where every team won during that 20 year stretch of course all right so that is the three seed I'll get to the six seed here the Celtics and the Cavaliers okay It would have been LeBron's final game as a Cav the first time, right? And, of course, he left for Miami, came back, but you all know the history. Okay. So that 08 team, as great as they were during the regular season, they had some real issues at the start of the postseason. Remember, they went seven with Atlanta, and now they're going seven with the Cavs, right? This game seven. And LeBron was, like, just hitting his prime, right? He was a physical freak. Still is a physical freak. I know he's dealing with an injury, but you get my point. Like, peak athleticism for LeBron, and Pierce and LeBron are going back and forth. Pierce goes for 41. LeBron goes for 45. The Celtics win 97-93. And, and remember how nervous you were with LeBron? Like, is he really going to do this? He's, is he this unstoppable? Because remember, he had beaten the Detroit Pistons the year before. where that Pistons team was in the conference finals. Like, every year they had won a championship. LeBron beat that team basically by himself. And you were starting to get really, really worried about LeBron, right? And that was obviously the most important game of Pierce's career. He carries the team. And I remember Ray really struggled in that series, had just four points in that game seven. And Pierce just would not let them lose. And after the game, Pierce is doing his media availability, if you will, with Garnett. And he's humming the Superman theme song because of how great Pierce was in that game. Just an incredible game. And it really started the sort of LeBron Celtics rivalry, right? And it really made... Pierce and LeBron and Garnett and LeBron like that started the whole thing but that was just I still can't believe how great LeBron was in that series but the Celtics just get by and of course we all know the history that they end up of course beating the Lakers and there was a great game in there too but uh, that game seven was just I mean that basically made Paul Pierce a champion because you don't get by the Cavaliers major trouble for that team right all right so those are our matchups Patriots Falcons Super Bowl against game five of the 2018 ALCS the David Price game Sox Astros and the 3-6 is the first Patriots Super Bowl, uh, the win against the Rams, against Game 7, the Celtics, and the Cavs that duel Pierce against LeBron. All right, so make sure you head on over to the Ringer Twitter account to vote on both polls. You can also head to fanduel.com mass to sign up for their great pre-live offers and get yourself ready to launch. 21 plus and present in Massachusetts, if you or a loved one is experiencing problems with gambling, call 1-800-327-5050 Or visit www.mahelpline.org slash problemgambling to speak with a trained specialist for free 24-7. All right, so make sure you get on the ring or Twitter account and vote on that. This has been a lot of fun going down memory lane with some of these games as we get ready for the official launch of Fandle as gambling is legal in Massachusetts, baby. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can also email your thoughts and questions to off the at gmail.com. And thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Srudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat with you guys on Tuesday.